Hi everyone, another Just Chemistry. We're tackling the subject this week of drugs. Again, addiction, how to overcome addiction, what our best public policy programs are for dealing with the issue of drug consumption of all varieties. Obviously, the context right now is 100,000 overdoses last year in the United States, an unbelievable number. And as listeners know, I've been trying to cover this story and, and think about some of the solutions, if there are any for what's going on. So I'm thrilled having talked to Michael Schellenberger, who has one perspective on the subject, especially what's now happening with addiction on the streets of many major American cities and the problems and tragedy of that situation. And now I want to talk with one of the most interesting and long-running advocates for harm reduction in terms of a strategy for dealing with the question of psychologically and psychoactive drugs. Maya Salovitz, is a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times. She has a new book out called Undoing Drugs. And I'm delighted. I, I, we got to know each other a little bit by phone when I was trying to understand the opioid epidemic. And she has an extraordinarily vivid and clear vision about this problem, but also a really riveting story. Welcome. And let me ask you, first of all, as I do with everyone, where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? And, and how did you find your journey leading to where you are now, this subject and this question? Sure. So I was born and raised in New York City. I grew up mostly about an hour upstate and came back to the city as soon as I could because I was really into being a journalist. And I was a very obsessive, weird kind of child. At first, my obsessions were opera and science fiction, which did not make me a very popular little girl. I was seen as very smart because I started to read on my own when I was three. And I eventually discovered that I, I am on the autism spectrum. And that was just not diagnosed very often in girls or at all back at the time. So anyway, I kind of struggled socially throughout high school and college. And I discovered that drugs were an obsession that people actually did want to listen to me go on about. And so I got more and more into drugs. And I eventually discovered heroin, which was to me a revelation because it allowed me to feel warm and safe and loved and connected. And it wasn't that I didn't have a supportive family. It was just that I really had some profound depression and sensory issues related to the autism. So, you know, that happened and then life went dramatically bad. Well, hold on a second. Let's, uh, let's unpack that, if we may. And if I'm asking any questions that are too personal, just tell me. But your book is okay. pretty raw and open. So you're, you're young, socially awkward. How would you describe yourself as on the spectrum, just super smart and super bright, not very socially at ease? Yeah, I was just like obsessed with things. And I'm still a lot better at remembering statistics than I am at remembering people's names. So I was weird. And I felt just very, very different from everybody else. If my family had stayed in the city, maybe I would have gone to one of those specialized high schools where there were a zillion people like me and it would have been different, but that is not what ended up happening. And when I got to Columbia at the college, that transition was really difficult. And it, that is when a lot of people who are sort of on the milder end of the spectrum kind of end up crashing and burning. And, and that is what happened to me. I got suspended for selling coke and then I got arrested and it was all a nightmare. I was shooting up 40 times a day. It was not good. When did this start? How did you find your way into I mean, here you are. Where are you living? Where's your family at you? So we were in um, Monroe, New York, which is best known for a mall. Um, and it is about so an hour. Up. A mile north of, of New York City? Yeah. Yeah. So this this is a, and it's also a relatively, you know, you have a, a not traumatized childhood. You, you you have a regular childhood. You're just a little. Yeah. I mean, the thing, I, 
the thing I should mention is my dad was a Holocaust survivor and he was profoundly depressed. And for a long time as a kid, I just thought like nothing I can do will make him will please him. You know, mm. it's like always not good enough. And that wasn't his fault. He was, you know, obviously he had serious issues related to that, but that's how I mm. interpreted it. And a lot of what went wrong for me was interpretations of things that sort of then led to self-hatred because right. I ended up feeling like I was a very smart kid, but I was a really bad person because I couldn't get along with other people and I was very bossy and I had difficulty making friends. So then I just thought, well, I'm hopelessly evil. And yeah, that was just not good. I hated myself so much that I felt that the only way anybody would ever care about me is if I got rich and famous and then they'd pretend to care about me and that would be good enough. And that's just horrible. I almost cry now to think about it because it's just like, no wonder I needed anesthesia. And so- So what know, years so, are we talking about? Your teenagers? Yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting because high school got slightly better. Junior high was just horribly bullied. But high school, I actually did manage to find some friends. I got really into the Grateful Dead, which is how I ended up in the LSD marijuana drugs world. And then I had a boyfriend that introduced me to cocaine. I should mention that it was the 80s and cocaine was seen as non-addictive at that time, believe it or not. And that was a misunderstanding of the definition of addiction, which still haunts us today. But Anyway, so then I now, got when really... you When do you first do marijuana or psychedelics? What is your first ever drug experience and how did that happen? Because I'm just fascinated how life happens, uh, right. how accident happens, how a contingency leads to contingency. Yeah, no, I'm really interested in that as well. And and basically what happened was I read the electric Kool-Aid acid test and I was looking for people who wanted to trip. And I eventually found a woman who became my best friend. I was at that point obsessed with being a television journalist. So I was commuting from my little town, Monroe, to Brooklyn, where Edward R. Morrow High School was, and I could use their equipment to do TV news related stuff. Um, and how old were you? Like 14, 15? I was like or 14. But I didn't start using until I was about 17. And this was right after I met this friend of mine and we managed to get some hash. That was my first high. And then not that long after we found some acid. And, you know, it was not peer pressure. I was looking for drugs. And the LSD is quite a big one to start with, it seems to me. Uh, hash, obviously, a little milder in that respect. Did you respond? How was your initial response to that? Because it sounds like you're saying that it wasn't until you hit heroin that something went off inside. Well, I mean, yeah. Like, the thing is, I was never addicted to psychedelics or marijuana. I certainly did plenty of them, but it just didn't catch me in that way. I had very profound experiences with psychedelics, and I... Feel but like no one's of, addicted to psychedelics. So, so no, no, they're not. But I mean, what's but fascinating about it is that they're not. Yes, they, exactly. they don't lead people, to this kind of thing. Yes, but people believe that they do. And that's why LSD and heroin are in the same class, stupid scientific class, which is not even scientific, in the Controlled Substances Act. There were, you know, a lot of people think LSD is this really hard drug. But, you know, for me, what it did was make me better at perspective taking, which can sometimes be a problem for people on the spectrum. And so suddenly I was like, oh, what if I was this other person? Or what's it like from their point of view? And like, oh, my mom wants me to do the dishes. Maybe instead of complaining, I can just do the dishes and that'll make her happy. You know, um, so I actually, unlike many kids who get into drugs, I became a much better nicer person to my parents because I was understanding them more. Now, this is not what I recommend as a way to do this as a teenager, but this is what happened for me. 
and also that, but that itself, it seems to me to make a distinction immediately between substances that you might take that actually, in terms of like some of the psychedelic drugs, when we think of psilocybin, or even now the clinical use of ketamine for depression, these are actually drugs that no one's obsessed with and doing them again and again and again and again because there's no compulsion really for them. They are the drugs. Although that, ketamine can be a little bit different in that. Yes, you're right. You're right in that respect. But certainly not like cocaine or heroin. Now, we've already got a distinction here between two kinds of drugs, right? The former seem to be relatively beneficial. You're not going to overdose on hash. It's just not going to. Nor on acid. You're going to nod off or you're going to have a bad trip, but you're going to be all right. So part of your broader argument is that we should dismiss the differences between drugs that have this no. effect. No, what I'm saying is we need to undo the concept because the concept of drugs puts LSD and heroin in the same class. Right. Our okay. way of seeing drugs as a country, because we don't see alcohol and tobacco as drugs, and we don't see caffeine as a drug, because those are all acceptable drugs. And those are the drugs that are done by people who could profit from them at the time when they became illegal, so they didn't become illegal. So I want to explode this category and say we need to actually look at these in a very individual way, not as this mass of they're all the same. So at some point, you then stumbled across heroin. Yes. This was after I got suspended from Columbia, and I just thought I had ruined my entire life, and it was all over anyway. So yeah, then it did get a lot worse because I was then doing heroin along with the cocaine. And eventually, I realized that you know I was 80 pounds. I had this court case looming over me. I'd been arrested a year before. I finally decided to get help, and I got myself into treatment and, and got into recovery. I now see recovery a little differently than I did at the time. And we have also skipped over the sort of essential part for this particular book, which has to do with how someone actually saved my life by teaching me to use clean needles. Yes, let's, when... let's not skip over that. Let's make sure we get the whole chronology right. So you, <laughs> okay, cool. you're, you're um, now at this point, you're at Columbia, you're doing heroin now, yeah. you're injecting heroin. Oh. Yeah, I started, I started by snorting and then I was sort of fascinated with injection for a while. And somebody, a guy who actually made his living at putting animals to sleep at the vet. So he was good at finding small veins, was able to help me fix the first time. He so didn't want about that first moment you did heroin. Well, the first time was snorting. And that was just like, I was really, really angry at my boyfriend because he was with someone else. And I was just freaked out and screaming at people. And we were in this kind of low rent, basically welfare kind of hotel. And everybody had possession of a lot of drugs. So nobody wanted me screaming. So they offered me some heroin. And I was just so angry that I just said yes. And then all of a sudden, I didn't care about the boyfriend anymore. And I just felt, you know, I'm okay. It's okay. You don't have to panic. And it was, I was so used to always being worried and always being self-conscious and always thinking that I'm just doing something wrong or I have toilet paper on my shoe or I'm just not right. All of a sudden I was like, ah, you know, I could finally feel okay. And I think that what's interesting to me now is I am on antidepressants and while they don't give me the euphoria of that experience, what they do give me is that safe, that that sense, that underlying sense of comfort and safety and okayness that I didn't have. I had like serious depression for a really long time without knowing that that's what it was. And so I was always on edge. And then the opioids 
allowed me to see that I didn't have to be that way. Now, I had had glimpses of that during the psychedelics, but as soon as you come down, you're just back to your life. And I think while I do think that there is therapeutic use in psychedelics by themselves, even with the fabulous insights that you can have, you need more than that in order to recover typically. Basically, what you're describing is a psychological problem that you're dealing with, this insecurity, this anxiety, and you're kind of reaching around for things that might help it. And yes. you know, whether that be a boyfriend or whether that be whatever it is. And then, and then by chance, in fact, in this case, because they're trying to just calm you down, suddenly right. you have this heroin. And I'm fascinated by that moment. And the reason I'm fascinated by it is because that's the moment that hundreds of thousands of Americans in the last two or three, four or five years have felt that in, the, in their lives as they were living, the stressed, anxious, insecure, not knowing what the future is, maybe broken families or, or lost job or all sorts of situations that people can be in, they stumbled across this and boom, suddenly they get the sense of it's going to be okay. Well, the I want to add something. Calm that comes in, right? The yes. heroin is this, it's this yes. mix of joy and calm. Now, I'm not, trust me, I'm not trying to recommend, I'm just no, no, no. And I want to I want to actually say something about this because first of all, most people who are exposed to opioids actually don't have this experience. Only about a third of people who are exposed to an opioid will have the euphoric experience. And only about one in ten of people who take opioids recreationally will become addicted. In medical situations, it's actually lower than that. So what happens sometimes is, and, and people will come up to me after I speak and they say, you know, I was in the hospital, I had surgery and they gave me fentanyl and it was just amazing. And I felt like, oh yeah, this is the best thing ever. And then I told them never give me any more of that stuff because it's not safe for me. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my dog. I don't want to lose my husband. I don't want to lose my cat. I don't want to lose my kids, you know, because they have something to lose. And it's the people who don't have something to lose or who are in just such a terrible emotional state most of the time who are vulnerable. And right. so this idea that anybody is exposed, like, I mean, 70% of the adult population in the United States has been exposed to medical opioids. We have an opioid addiction rate of about 2%. So we have to look at this because we focus so obsessively on the substance that we end up creating policies that do harm. Yes, I'm fascinated by that. I mean, I'm going to go in and have a hip replacement in a couple of weeks, and uh, I'm probably going to get some some pretty good opioids to get me through the short-term pain, which will, I'm sure, be there. But this sense that you get exposed to this, and obviously a lot of people living their lives, they get exposed, it helps them get through pain, and they move on, you don't do it anymore, et cetera, et cetera. That's a, that's a large majority. But some people whose lives are probably unbelievably shitty or stressed out, or they might have psychological issues as you did, or they might have social issues trauma. that make them uncomfortable. They may have childhood trauma. They may be isolated from friends and family, all sorts of things that we can understand as human beings yeah. that lead us into the state of insecurity and anxiety, which you can feel everywhere right now. This epidemic of COVID has, if anything, just obviously increased all the stress and tensions. And suddenly, of those people, some people have this and they're like, Jesus, Lord, I was so miserable outside of this. My life was such, I, I didn't realize how miserable and lost I was until this came along. And now I don't want to lose it. 
And those are the people, those are the people that you then get trapped in this. And of course, you would understand why that would be people who are often at the lower end of the spectrum or in terms of their resources, family structure, et cetera, cetera. but also just also people just psychologically at the end of the spectrum. It seems like there's not a ton of data on this, but extremely wealthy people are also probably at higher risk, like middle class is at the lowest risk. But the 1%, if you have a structureless life where you don't have to be anywhere, where you have infinite resources and where having everything can mean like can be just as meaningless as having nothing. So you can see that there can be some issues there as well. And I think, but what's really important- There is a is, remarkable democracy to recovery, isn't it? It's yes, like one of these yes. extraordinary sort of moments where you people, I'm, I'm not in recovery and have never been in recovery, but I, I know yes. plenty of people have been. When you're in yes. this room and it doesn't matter, gender, race, sex, background, class. It's no, human. it's all good. It's just humans, it's just human beings. Yes. So there can still be some of those related issues. But I think that the the important thing is we're not talking about people who are looking for extra pleasure or unearned whatever. Like the whole of our drug policy is aimed at making life miserable for people who use drugs in order to make them stop. If we understand that they are already miserable and that making them more miserable is not going to work, that is basically the essence of harm reduction. Harm reduction is about compassionate connection with people, meeting people where they are, not saying we must make you hit bottom or we're not going to talk to you unless you stop using. We don't care about you unless you stop using. You can just go die of AIDS and that will serve as an example to kids. So that'll be good. You know, it's just our policy is just so backwards. So let's take it to your actual situation. Here you are. You're starting to shoot heroin. And what year is that? This is 86. So this is the late 80s, which is when HIV is beginning to spread quite rapidly. So tell me what happened to you. What was your actual first direct experience of a harm reduction strategy? Sure. So this was probably the dumbest time in the history of the world to become an IV drug user in New York City, because 50% of my fellow IV drug users were already HIV positive, including the guy that I was about to share a needle with. And I was sitting in his apartment and one of his girlfriends actually was visiting from out of town to try to get him into rehab. And so he had gone out to score for us to get like, you know, one last hurrah for him. And I gave him my money so he could get drugs, which I wanted. So I'm sitting there with this woman from San Francisco and she's like, you know, you're at risk for AIDS. And I'm like, what? I thought that was gay men. And, you know, I read two newspapers a day and I watched the news and everything like that. And there was almost, I mean, there was not good AIDS coverage of gay men either, but it was even worse for IV drug users who were like a paragraph at the end of that story, which you weren't necessarily reading. So anyway, I didn't know. And she's like, you're at risk. You really shouldn't share needles, but if you absolutely have to, you should clean them twice with bleach and twice with water, and that will reduce your risk. And so as compulsive as I was about using needles, I became compulsive too about cleaning them. And so I believe that she saved my life. And for the book, I actually went and tracked her down, which sort of took a bit of doing because I didn't even know her name. But I was eventually able to find her and thank her, which was very moving for both of us. Yeah. And of course, that was also a period when the deaths and illnesses of that were just devastating on top of the the drug use. So did you, so you continued to shoot heroin, but safely, is that what you're saying? 
More safely, yes. And I mean, the thing was that, you know, she just said, oh, you must stop now. I didn't know how to stop. Like the problem was I was addicted. I wasn't going to stop instantly because somebody says stop. Like when you said I was addicted, I want you to unpack what you mean by that, because I think people have all sorts of different ideas of what that means. And what did it in, in, as you, in your own life, what, just start from you, so, what did it mean to you? Yeah, I actually wrote an entire book about this because the definition of addiction is so complicated. But for me at that time, I didn't see myself as addicted at that time. So I thought that a person who was what, addicted, what you thought you were just doing heroin without being addicted? Like denial does exist. It's oh, not only it's... a characteristic of people who use drugs and we overemphasize it in addiction. But but yes, I just I don't know what I thought. But at that time, I sort of defined addiction for myself as someone who does things that they feel really bad about in order to get their drugs and then they can't enjoy the drugs anymore. And that's actually not far away from the actual widely accepted definition of addiction, which is compulsive drug use that continues in the face of negative consequences. And note that this does not mention anything about physically needing something to function. Physical dependence is physically needing something to function. And people who take opioids long-term for pain are gonna be physically dependent, but if they're not compulsively using despite consequences, they're not addicted. Similarly, people who are taking methadone or buprenorphine or even heroin maintenance long-term to treat addiction, if they're not compulsively using despite consequences anymore, they are now in recovery. They still have physical dependence, but you know we all have physical dependence on air and water and food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yes, but <laughs> there's little difference. There is a little difference between being dependent upon air. Yes, the thing is that, like, yes, we all need to be dependent on air. I personally need to be dependent on antidepressants, otherwise, I'm going to be a miserable person. And I. You know, Prozac is not one that has really bad withdrawal, but some of the SSRIs really do have bad withdrawal. But I don't consider it like I'm not sitting around thinking, oh, when can I get my next Prozac? And I'm a Prozac user. And it's funny, you know, but there's there's an element. I'm just we're digressing a tiny bit here, but there is an element and it's often the case. And it's psychologically hard with people with depression, for example, who take medications for depression, as I do. Some part of them has in the back of our minds. Well, when I'm able to stop using these meds, I will be a better person. I'm going to get to a point where I don't need these meds. Now, if I had that attitude towards my HIV meds, I, it, it doesn't make any sense. Right. No, um, and it doesn't make any more sense with this. And I feel very strongly about that because I am not a lesser person because I happen to need antidepressants and I'm not less moral than anybody else. I just happen to be born wired differently. And for me, that means that my senses get overwhelmed really easily and I get emotionally overwhelmed really easily. And this just turns down the volume. Mm -hmm. Now, for some people, the volume is too low. And if you turn down the volume lower, it's going to be bad and they're going to get depressed from the antidepressant because that's not what they need. But for people who are up here, a little less sensitive is actually good. And so when we say, oh, these drugs numb you, oh, these drugs, you know, do all these things and, and make you, well, sometimes you can be too sensitive. And it me for me, when I am oversensitive and you just like caught up in my nervous system, I can't be present for people. I am a much better, you know, friend and spouse and person in the world on medication. And I don't think I should be judged by that just because like, you know, cognitive approaches didn't reach the parts of my nervous system that needed to be reached. Right. But let's then, so, so then you take 
and it's one of the joys of living in modern world, is that there are things that you can take that can help in ways that didn't in the past. They're, they're actually not huge game changers, the SSRIs, but they definitely help at the margins. But what you're talking about with addiction is continuing to take, let's just call it a medication, because in some ways you're med trying to medicate yourself with some kind of substance, right? So let's just right. broadly call it that. But there's a point at which it isn't helping you. You're doing it because you feel compelled to do it. You're not in control of yourself. This thing has taken over. Now, how is that distinguished from, for, I mean, how do we get to this point where I understand that? I understand compulsive behavior outside of chemicals. So people can be, can be compulsively, uh, let's say, obsessive about arranging the socks in their dresses, yes. right? So there's, there are compulsivity things that are not helpful. They're actually hurting you, but you do. At the same time, there's also chemical triggers that seem obviously to vary between substance and substance. So that obviously some are much more intense than others. Some have a much bigger jump at the beginning. Even within the same medication, there can be different impacts depending upon how you absorb it. So if you take an, yep. if, if you go and buy an edible and a couple hours later the sunset's looking particularly nice, it's different than if you sit down and do a quick joint and you're a little out of it for 10 minutes. You know? so, right. so I'm, how do we distinguish between this chemical thing and this behavioral thing? Well, I don't think we do. I think what we should focus on is why are people doing what they're doing? Yes, we need to be aware that, say, fentanyl is more likely to kill you than marijuana. <laughs> yes, the substance does matter. But what matters more is what does it mean to you and why are you doing it compulsively? Because the compulsion is in you. It's not in the substance. Like there can be people who are addicted to carrots so much so that they will turn orange, literally. Now, nobody thinks carrots have any chemical hook, but a person can get addicted to them. But are and you so saying there is no chemical hooks in any of these things? I think that we overemphasize it. The thing is like, okay, if you compare like, say, cocaine to opioids, cocaine is much more compulsive. Like during the end of my addiction, I would get up every day and be like, I'm not going to shoot coke. I'm not going to shoot coke because I know it will suck. And then I would shoot coke. Literally, it just happened every single day. And I knew I just wanted it very desperately, but I did not like it. And there's different systems in the brain that look at wanting versus liking. And so I later understood that. And with opioids, those don't get as disjoined as they get with something like a stimulant because opioids directly act on opioid receptors and your endogenous opioids are there to make you feel warm, safe, and loved. So they're about satisfaction and comfort and safety, whereas the dopamine highs that are associated with, say, cocaine or methamphetamine are about the pleasure of the hunt and you are confident and you can get, you know, you're like the cat that's about to get the thing. With the opioids, let's, you've got let's, the let's, let's make a distinction there too, because it's one I'm interested in, cocaine and crystal meth, for example. Yes. Now, I, I'm aware of people who've done cocaine for long years in their lives or, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it wasn't exactly rare, but they did not lose their entire, on the whole, I mean, there definitely yeah. some people lost everything. All they could do was spend all their money on cocaine. And and, yes. and obviously that's a proportion to do that. But with something like crystal meth, which is, it, it seems to be there's a much higher 
likelihood of getting completely obsessed with this. Yeah, if you look at the data, um, cocaine and methamphetamine seem to be about equally addictive. So about 10 to 20% of people. Now, again, it will depend on the environment and the person. And, you know, some people have speculated, I might add, that the new P2P meth is like worse. But there really isn't any data suggesting that this is the case. And that combination, that kind of methamphetamine was around in the 60s, too. So yeah, I think the question there is also whether that new kind of meth is much more easily produced and therefore can become much more available, isn't requiring the same raw materials, therefore can be can be made or cooked quite close to where. Yes. Why did that happen? Well, I understand that happened because of prohibition. I, 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 yes, we're not. We realize we're in this rabbit hole here, but but I'm trying to see how we can get out of the rabbit hole without, in a way that's that's sane. Let me ask you this then: Why do you think that opioid overdoses, opioid use, has gone through the roof in this country in the last ten years or so, and specifically also in the last? several years. What is creating that? Now, there's one, I'll just very briefly say, there's the one that big pharma got lots of people addicted to kill them, made lots of money. That's end of story. That is that is one aspect of the story. Let's say well, you can't deny that that's there. No, no, no. I mean, I'm not uh, saying that. And, it's, it's and it was malign and it was reckless. On the other hand, when you go back and you look at the history of this, you realize, in fact, at the time, there were lots of ideas about why this was actually breakthrough why in fact we had finally mastered the ability to end pain without creating uh, dependence i mean there was a lot of stuff going on in the culture yeah. around i mean what i want to say about that is just that 80% of people who got addicted to prescription opioids did not have a prescription for them right so the vast majority of people with pain never get addicted even if they take it long term and the vast majority of the people who did get addicted did not have pain. Now, this is not to say the pain like relieves you of addiction risk. That is not the case. It's just more that we are targeting the wrong thing. So we just cut the medical supply by 60% since 2011. We also, during that same period, more than doubled the overdose death rate. And that was completely predictable because if you cut off a supply and you don't offer treatment for pain or addiction, why would you not think that the illegal market is going to come in? Why did they think it was okay to do that? Well, yeah, it was one misjudgment after another. The misjudgment to begin <laughs> yes. with that these drugs would not hook people in a way that they did for a section of the people that are yes. access to it. Yes. They thought actually there was arguments that these new opioids removed the high and the low. So it didn't give you the the attraction well, I mean, to go back. There were all sorts of arguments about that, in yeah. fact, this would be well, a non-addictive. Like Purdue argued that, and it is actually the case, that longer acting opioids are less reinforcing because if you do have fewer ups and downs, then you are less likely to develop craving because you're not constantly sitting around waiting. So that is a true thing. The thing that is false that Purdue did evilly is they said it lasted 12 hours when it lasts eight. So that was like completely a lie. I tell this story at some length in the piece I did called The Poison We Pick. It's in my book and it's also uh, online. You can find it. But yeah, that was a deception. On the other hand, it seems that they met a population desperate for some kind of relief from something. Absolutely. And what's that? 
Sure. So, I mean, I think the American middle class has been in decline and wage stagnation and all kinds of situations in our culture have left a lot of people out. Rising inequality, you know, there's just all kinds of things where people who thought that they were going to have a nice middle class life like or working class life like their parents, that's just not possible anymore. Nobody can afford to go to college. You can't make a living without college and you can't afford to go to college. So we really have created a society that is ripe for addictions. I mean, one of the, it's kind of interesting how middle-classness kind of is protective. Obviously it's not hundred percent protective, but the elements of middle-class life that are protective are routine, uh, structure, meaning, purpose, you feel part of a community. When that gets ripped up, which it has done in a lot of places across the country, then you see very high rates of addiction. Like we also saw this in the Black community with crack in the um, 80s and 90s, because who got hit first by deindustrialization? Black people. And now they didn't have factory jobs or factory jobs weren't paying. And suddenly you end up with, gee, here's this substance that either you can escape from that reality with, or you can make money with. And the same thing happened with opioids in rural communities where suddenly they're flooded with this substance. And I might add that if they were as addictive as claimed, why do people have so many leftover pills to sell, right? So, you know, but what happened is it's differential risk. The people who are willing to use the leftovers are people who are at higher risk by definition than people who are being prescribed them by a doctor. But what we're seeing essentially is that people who have been dislocated in some way or, or yes, have found yes, their exactly. lives uprooted, whether it be deindustrialization. And in fact, one of the things I brought up in the, the OPOI piece I did was that industrialization was also a function, was also facilitated a big rise in addiction rates and opioid and opi well, in those in those days, just opium. What was it they called it? I'm just suddenly it's like laudanum was the name. Oh, of, yes, of the yes, drug. yes. And and as a way when you're dragged out, for example, the traditional way of life, rural way of life, and you're suddenly thrown into these big steaming Victorian cities with smoke and factories and breakdown of family structures and traditions and rituals and everything that you're used to, this came in as a, as a kind of like salve, as a kind of way to make it all feel better. And it spread very widely. The, the, the difference, of course, is that the strength of the opium. Right. It's not Lord, easy to overdose it, on it's it. It's really hard yeah. to overdose on opium. You just yes. fall asleep yes. and you not. Whereas, obviously, at this point, partly a function of prohibition, but the concentrated contemporary modern forms of these reliefs are extraordinarily potent and yes. also incredibly hard to measure. So when this is out on the street and you're dealing with a few tiny grains of something that could kill you, that is where this terrible risk has come in. But people, even knowing that risk, even knowing how dangerous it is, still want the fentanyl. They not only just want the fentanyl, they want the, the latest fentanyl. That's what Although, I hear I mean, from people. Fair. They're just desperate for that kind of relief. I mean the thing is that like certainly people are taking extreme risks by taking fentanyl but you know in the past in in my day of using heroin people would seek the stuff that somebody had died from because that would be strong enough to get right. through the tolerance that a sort of old head right. drug user had at that point right? right um now they really don't do that because now it just kills you 
Like right. they are seeking the best high. They People are generally, I mean, there are some people who don't care. And when you get to the point where you don't care, it's not clear if it's suicide or overdose. And there's certainly people that are in that state because of the desperation of the addiction and of the things that drove them to the addiction in the first place. So there is definitely that. But for the most part, people want to be conscious to experience their high. And what fentanyl does is you may get about five seconds of euphoria and then you're unconscious. So most people, before they get a tolerance to it, would definitely prefer the heroin. Right. Yes, most people. And then there are those in particular danger who are those who are in recovery or just come out of recovery whose tolerance has gone down a lot and then suddenly they relapse and get a strain that is way stronger than their system is capable. And I'm thinking of someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who seems to have been a victim of that particular scenario in which your own tolerance has actually gone down a lot. You re relapse and then it's way too strong for your system and it kills you. Now, well, and this, is why, this is why medication treatment is so important in these times, because methadone and buprenorphine are the only things that are proven to cut the death rate by 50% or more, but only if you stay on them. Now, some people don't tolerate them well, and you know they need to have abstinence or they need different medications or whatever. But if you're on the medication and you relapse, you're much less likely to die than if you're abstinent. And that's a sad truth about the way it is now. Right. That's about developing some kind of tolerance in your system that, that enables you not to, when if you do relapse, that it's not going to be that fatal. Now, harm reduction, if you, harm reduction is really going there with people who are addicted, attempting as best you can to see them as humans, fully human beings, and see their predicament and attempt to help them find a way out right, it, where, from where they are, which means making sure that they're not doing things that are going to kill themselves or presumably harm others. And I think a lot of people would understand that impulse and think it's probably the smartest way to engage people with these kind of addictions. At the same time, if there's a worry, a completely legitimate worry, it seems to me, that if you are providing drugs to people who are already addicted and you're trying to do it in a way that helps them sustain themselves and then tries to bring them around to getting over these drugs in, in a constructive way, there is a danger that you are actually enabling this addiction, especially if they're also then allowed to live freely in the society so that we have these extraordinary gatherings of, of essential homeless addicts, I'm not, I'm not supposed to use the word homeless or addict anymore, but people who are addicted, who are homeless, who don't have homes, who are in these camps, these settlements, these that are becoming increasingly dangerous. A lot of this kind of self-medication is related to all sorts of mental challenges, mental illness, some schizophrenia, some also a whole lot of depression, a whole variety of things which people have sought. And then they find these communities and, and these communities are built around feeling at home with other people like that, and they're becoming places where these drugs are disseminated. Now, well, let you me, can see how that yes, no, okay, creating me, a, a okay. real public oh, yes, health and public yes, order yes. problem. Nobody in harm reduction wants people defecating on the street, peeing on the street, shooting up on the street. The situation that we have now is a really complex social problem involving 
lack of treatment for mental illness, lack of treatment for addiction, lack of housing. You do not see these situations like West Virginia has the highest overdose rate in the country, does not have much homelessness because it's very cheap. So the important thing is that we have to emphasize what works. And we have been arresting people to try to get them into recovery or something for the last hundred years with zero success. And we know that if you look at the research, this whole concept of enabling is just wrong. For example, in Switzerland, they prescribe heroin. So that's pretty much as enabling as you can get, right? You're given somebody a prescription for heroin. Now, you would think if enabling were true, that these people would be less likely to move into more traditional maintenance or abstinence treatment. They are not. There is no harm reduction intervention that has been studied that proves the enabling case. Like, it just doesn't show up. Like, I originally thought that, oh my God, you know, if people are parked on methadone, they will like sort of be missing the wonderful joys of complete abstinence because they like only went halfway. But when I started to look at the data, that isn't what it shows. It shows that it cuts the death rate in half and it doesn't keep people from moving on. Now, there may be some minority for whom that that is the case. But if you look, for example, at our criminalization policy, so, you know, people argue that the only way to clean up the streets is to arrest these people. Now, we have more drug arrests than any other kind of arrests in the United, going on in the United States. So we do a lot of drug arrests. We also know that only less than 7% of people who are incarcerated get treatment. The treatment rate is higher outside of prison. Yes, but here's the thing. I don't think I'm not going to defend the incarceration model in which you throw people into jail they mainly do not get treatment for what they're doing. They may even continue their drug use in jail. But I think there are people who say, well, let's, arrest may be the wrong formula. But if someone is dealing with serious illnesses, mental illnesses and so on, and they do pose a potential harm to others, they're obviously clearly also openly harming themselves in many respects. There should be a procedure or some way in which we can involuntarily push these people into treatment. Mandatory treatment, not jail, but mandatory treatment. Okay. Why that seems to me to be a combination of the two things that might Wait, why is our first impulse to coerce people? If you look at our current treatment system, it is extraordinarily coercive. Most people who end up, about half of people in treatment currently are there for some legal system related reason. That means that if I have, let's say I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. And I'm sitting there in a meeting with people who are rolling their eyes because they want this damn thing to be over. Coercion actually distorts the treatment system in a way that makes it less effective. And also, why should we prioritize people who aren't seeking treatment over people who want help and are ready well, to get it? you don't have to prioritize them. You could say all of the above, please. In other well, words, yes, but you could, I, all say, I'm you could say you can't stay on the streets if you are openly selling using drugs. If that's well, what's going on, then we have one, to get you into, you don't have to add criminal penalties. In fact, they could create a way in which you know, these kind of addictive behaviors can simply be responded to medically with medical personnel, come in, take people, it doesn't have to be police even, it can be, t and take them to centers where, where proper treatment, treatment can happen. Right. 
But why don't we actually build that treatment? Because we're spending too much money coercing people by using the criminal legal system. Look, like we are- Don't you know, pretend example, this is either or. Why not both? Maya, why aren't you in favor of both? Because coercion should be a last resort, not a first resort. And right now, we continually use it as a first resort, and therefore, we believe that it's essential. When, and when, when mentally unwell people who have addiction problems are walking around the streets, assaulting people, attacking people, okay, but that's crimes, destabilizing right. whole yes. neighborhoods. Yes. Then in, in that case, they should be put into care. But the thing is, I'm talking about drug possession. You don't solve homelessness by arresting people for drug possession. And people who are arguing for we need to clean up the streets, like, for example, Michael Schellenberger, argues that we need to arrest people. He claims that in Portugal that has decriminalized drugs, that coercion is their main strategy. And the reality is that that is not true. Well, in what do you Portugal, mean by coercion? If you give people, I, if, you, if you tell people you're off the street or in jail or in a treatment center, is that coercion? So if, if you get stopped by a police officer with possession of a substance in a personal possession amount, not a dealing amount, but a personal possession amount, you will get a ticket that's the equivalent of a traffic ticket. And you will be told you need to show up at this dissuasion committee, which includes a lawyer and a social worker and maybe a doctor. The other person, the third person is varies. And then you go there and they basically try to talk you into treatment. Or if you're a casual pot smoker, they just tell you, go home and don't do it again, which is 90% of their stops. So most of the time, no coercion happens. Most of the time, no one recidivates. In some extreme cases where people have serious trouble, they can have sanctions. These are not criminal sanctions, but they're not allowed to go in a particular neighborhood or they have to do community service or they have to do treatment. There's a bunch of different That's things. That's coercion. Yes, but it's not criminalization. Well, I and agree. I understand that. But, but he's but, arguing but, for arresting people. He's well, claiming that in Portugal, what they primarily do is arrest and coercion. And when you look at what they actually do in practice, the people, what they did was build out their treatment system and more people came to it without coercion because yes, it's but available. at some point, they say, if you have you have this ticket, you come and you have to be taught, you have to be persuaded to go to to treatment right now. What if the person says, fuck you, I'm not going. What if they don't show up? What happens right. if they so, don't show up? To the nothing. At first, at first, nothing. What do you mean um, at first, nothing? Then something happens. First offense, nothing. No, they. Um, OK, second offense. Again, it's going to vary, but only five percent of people in their system reoffend. So it's a minority that this is happening with. Yeah, but I'm they, just trying to get here there. Instead of making this a binary question, coercion, non-coercion, we're, we're talking about something slightly in between. We're talking about. Right, no, no, and what, I'm fine with in between, but that's not that's not what people are advocating. People like Schellenberger are advocating keeping the current system of criminalization and arresting people. And instead of putting them in jail, putting them in treatment. And that does not work. The better way to do it and the way places like Portugal do it is decriminalize, beef up your services, make the services really inviting, not coercive. Like part of the reason people don't go to treatment, a big reason, and part of the reason I didn't go to treatment until I finally did, was that a lot of treatment is about humiliation, attacks, 
just treating you like a horrible person. Because well, the, honestly, it, no, I don't think we're anybody sane is in favor of that. But that exists widely in our treatment system. And so if we want to actually improve our treatment system, what we have to do is make it more welcoming. Make I'll be honest with you. I mean, I have seen this recovery. So I've seen several people I know go into recovery after incidents and so on and so forth. I don't think they're being demonized when they go into those treatment centers. My impression is that they're treated humanely and they are invited okay, to come You probably it. know people on the top end of the economic spectrum, for one. But secondly, 90% of our current treatment system consists of indoctrinating people into 12-step programs. Now, I'm not saying that 12-step programs aren't useful and that a lot of people don't benefit from them, including myself. What I am saying is that if when you go to treatment for a supposed medical condition and they say that like what you need to do is take moral inventory, pray and make amends, I would leave if that was a depression or a cancer treatment. And that should not be our go-to for addiction treatment because for one, you can get that for free at any church basement pretty much. So 90% of the content of what people get when they're in these shishi rehabs or even in the low end ones is go to a meeting, read the big book, do the 12 steps, make amends, find a higher power, all of this kind of stuff. We waste an enormous amount of resources on that. And it is our, so what I'm trying to say is- But hold on a minute. Yeah. Part of what I find impressive about AA and 12-step programs is that they do, you talk a lot about the rights of people with addiction, but are there not also some responsibilities to other people, to society in general? And what AA says is that, yes, you as a person in society, you have responsibilities to the people who love you, to your family. This addiction has caused great harm to those people. You've caused the harm to those people. And, and taking responsibility for your own, the consequences of your actions is actually an empowering thing, not a disempowering thing. And, and the truth is that these drugs and the addictive behaviors that they are associated with do hurt people. They, well, me... they destroy families. They ruin relationships. They, they can lead to... to, so, to... Okay, but let me, just, let me just say this. So, so, so why can't we hold people we responsible we... for their own actions? Yes, we can and we should. But if we want to actually... If we're going to argue that addiction is a disease and a medical condition then we should also be making people with bipolar and people with depression and people with cancer make amends for the harms they do. If you're going to single out addiction as the moral illness, then you are not treating it as a disease. You are still treating it as a sin. And so I this is, a level I believe that, every, wait, 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 let me finish now. Everybody should take a moral inventory. Every human being should make amends for the harm that they do. Every human being should do their spiritual thing that works for them, including nothing. But it's just that when you uniquely apply that only to people with addiction, with the arm of a law forcing people in, which is unconstitutional actually, but happens all the time, you end up with a system that's working at odds with itself. Because for example, NA, which is the 12-step program for opioid addiction, they don't believe you're clean if you are on methadone or buprenorphine. So basically they tell people to come off the only medication that cuts the death rate in half. And so you have this system that's working at cross purposes with itself. I'm not saying people shouldn't go to AA and NA, nor am I saying that treatment shouldn't recommend people to that. What I'm saying is that we should not pay for what we can get for free. 
and that we should pay for the less problematic and less moralistic strategies that allow people to get better and allow them to go and go to the 12-step programs or just on their own make amends for the harm that they did because people want to do that. You know, it's it's just a matter of making treatment evidence-based. Right. And And I think like coercion, again, you know, we have a system that locks people up if they're a danger to themselves or others. Well, unfortunately, um, it seems we don't actually. That, that, well, right. And, and I mean, in, like, fact, in fact, we have we have laws that allow people who are clearly dealing with serious mental illness to to do drugs on the streets in a way that I find just to observe it happening in front of you. These well, people, I mean, the other thing, no that, um, decent society should let this be happening no, I agree on with, their I streets. That. But I just think that there. But the your your that, response seems to be make sure that the crack pipes are are not. No. Dirty, make sure that... No, that is not what I'm saying. You have to meet people where they are. Yeah, of course. And, right. And then you have and to take them somewhere where they can... Right, heal. that sometimes means making sure their crack pipe's okay. But it also means when they say, okay, you know, this really isn't working for me. I want help. You have the door open. And you have that... But don't you think you should encourage the help from the get-go? If you if go you in there and that, say, we're going to keep... We're going to give you the best shit we've ever had indefinitely without any... No, no, but that isn't that isn't what you're just mischaracterizing harm reduction. Well, the, um, I want you to I want you to characterize. But I'm saying it. so like there's a whole thing in harm reduction called motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to get people to seek whatever goal it is. So let's say they want to smoke crack on week weekends and not every day. Most people are not going to achieve that, but maybe some will. And if they do, that will make them far more employable and will reduce a lot of harm. But in the process of trying, a lot of people will realize that, you know what, this is just too much of a struggle. Why do I need to do this? I'm wasting my money. I'm not even enjoying it anymore. You know, what about those meetings? Can you maybe take me to one? Like, it's about building a relationship and about taking people who, you know, so every time a homeless person or unhoused person has an interaction with the rest of the world. Usually somebody's demanding, we don't care about you unless you get clean. We don't care about you unless you pray in our church. We don't care about you unless you do X, Y, or Z. When somebody says, I just want you to be safer. I want you to be healthy. That sort of wakes people up. The, you know, And this happens in needle exchange all the time, especially back in the day when it was illegal because people were like, you're risking getting arrested in order to like help me who you don't know and who everybody else treats like utter shit. <laughs> so it's more, and it, it's in practice, it is quite spiritual, oddly enough, because basically you are treating people the way you would wish to be treated. You know, you're loving your neighbor. And it's really powerful because those people don't get unconditional love very often. And when you start to be valued, then you start to value yourself. And that's how people move out. So it looks on the surface like, oh, you're just giving them crack pipes and saying, go for it. What you're really doing is building a relationship so that people can get to the best place they can. And especially in the unhoused population, there's an enormous amount of trauma. And a lot of people are not going to be able to give up those substances until you address the trauma. Right. Now, typically, we have said you must give up the substances before we'll help you address the trauma. Harm reduction therapy, which is a thing, <laughs> um, works with people to deal with this 
without them necessarily having to give up the substances first. I and understand. So I understand. And, and the way you have just described it, Maya, has been <laughs> very eloquent and, uh, and moving in a way, because I think at some point I can think about statistics. I can, I can look at studies. <laughs> We're dealing with the human heart here and, yes. and broken hearts, people whose lives have fucked up. And they may have made a couple of dumb decisions, right? That, that, but we've all made dumb decisions. We're humans. And reaching people where they are with compassion and love is what certainly I'm taught and have always been taught is the only way to behave towards other people that is morally correct. And I agree with you. And finding a way, especially to destigmatize people who are in the situation, because it, it's so easy to dismiss people. Um, junkies, people, and, and not to see, you know, our fellow man right there, our fellow human there, but for the grace of God. And it's hard. And I know the people engaged in this, it's also who are doing the work. It's emotionally beyond draining and hard. I mean, all of the people out there trying to reduce. Yes. And I mean, I think the, I think one of the things that is really, you know, empowering and interesting in harm reduction that is a bit problematic now, but on um, reversing overdoses with naloxone, like how much more of a valuable thing can you do than to save somebody else's life? And so when you empower people to save their friends' lives like that, that is extraordinary. And that often drives people towards recovery. Well, that's um, not, no one's, no one's even questioning the well, validity are, of uh, maximal distribution of Naxalone in as yeah, many I mean, places are, as possible. I could name names, but um, the, but we um, do need to do that. I don't think anybody. Yeah, would no, no, be... no. But what I, what I'm trying to say is I'm talking about like a side effect of that. A side effect of that is on the rescuer. Like, oh, I'm somebody. I saved ten lives. You know. Now, when it's getting up there in numbers, this is the problematic bit it gets traumatic. Or if you don't have enough, like I've heard of people in situations where they have several people overdose and not enough naloxone. Who wants to have to make that decision? That's a terrible position to put anybody in. Or, so, or moments where I've heard that someone will revive someone from Naxalone and be, be cursed out by that person. In other words, that you're dealing with people in really tough circumstances yes, who are not going to be all lovey-dovey yes, and lovely. No, no, no. And, and there's a reason people, people can get upset about them. And, yes. and there's a reason there well, can be aggression. Okay. There's a way to fix this, which is don't use massive doses. Like if you are reviving people, and this is the doses that are given out at needle exchanges are usually pretty calm. They're not going to put you into like, so that you're suddenly vomiting and other orifices involved. You mean you know, alone we're talking about now? We're naloxone, naloxone. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like doctors and this new high dose version that they're trying to sell now often hit them up with a maximum dose so that people are literally suddenly puking and shitting themselves. And of course, they're going to curse you out if they do, if that happens. Now, most of the time when people are revived, it does sometimes happen that they're angry, but it often happens that they're just confused and they just don't know what happened. And if you hit them with a lower dose of naloxone so that they are not suddenly in extreme withdrawal, then they are less likely to go immediately to buy drugs to relieve that withdrawal. So it's again, a matter of being kind with the naloxone. Now, again, there's situations like some of these fentanyls, you need to hit somebody fast with a large dose and they may not be happy and they may curse you out. And that's difficult to deal with. But for the most part, especially when it's a fellow user who is reviving somebody, that isn't what's happening. 
you know, they may be cursing out the police for many reasons, which we don't need to get into here. <laughs> but um, can you see? Can you understand why people just concerned that that about the question of enabling, about the question of maybe not helping in in the attempt to help not helping? I mean, I think you've made a very good case, and I'm basically persuaded of a non-coercive, non-criminalization policy towards. But I I, I would I think want slightly, <laughs> a little bit more firmness in bringing people into treatment. I don't think we can let what's happening on our streets continue indefinitely. No, and, and I don't think it will happen. No wants that either. Like what we, and I mean, the, the other thing that people have attacked wrongly is a policy called housing first. And this is the idea of offering housing with supportive services, including help for people who want abstinence to, but you're not required to be abstinent to get the housing. And this has actually, according to studies by the government, cut homelessness amongst veterans by 50%. The problem, and in Utah, they had an amazing result with it. They really adopted it widely and they cut homelessness dramatically. And then of course they cut the services and it reverted. So you know, this stuff isn't cheap supportive housing and you want there to be abstinence only housing for people who are focused on abstinence and for whom that is their goal. But a lot of the people with severe mental illness, they're using drugs, but that's not their main problem. Their main problem is this. Can you see why as a public policy question saying we are going to build houses for people who are addicted to drugs and we are going to continue to allow them to be addicted to drugs as they live in these houses indefinitely is something that's just not going to fly well, politically I mean, anywhere. In, in Utah, they did it. Um, you know, um, in, in Utah, which is not exactly a liberal state. No, but uh, maybe because it's not such a liberal state and, 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 and it already has such powerful sources of, of social capital, maybe it could work there, but you can see why. No, and, and that's sort of, like, this is called, this is a marketing problem here. You're not marketing it as like, we're going to have these like drug filled houses where everybody has drug orgies. And, you don't and have to market it that way, but that's what it's going to be seen. No, that's how people are going to describe is, it no, and people are going to object to it. No, no, no. What you're talking about is housing for people with mental illness. We have tried requiring abstinence in order to house people, and it has been a dramatic failure. What basically happens is people go in, they get thrown out, they go in, they get thrown out, they go in, they get thrown out. Nobody can stabilize their life that way. It is really difficult to become abstinent when you are constantly getting thrown out of treatment if you relapse. So that doesn't mean that you these places are free for all. Like Housing Works in New York, for example, they there are definitely situations where they will throw somebody out. And when I was interviewing people for the book, I spoke with their chief executive and one of the co-founders, and he was talking about this one guy who was kind of their prototypical client. And every house, every apartment they got him, he set up a brothel, he <laughs> was dealing drugs, so he kept getting thrown out. But the last apartment they got for him, he stayed there till he died of HIV, actually. But it was many years later, and he stabilized at that point. And what they find when they run these places that are not abstinence only is that about a third of people, nothing is helping. About a third of people are improving. And about a third of people are actually moving well towards abstinence. And so- well, Hold on a minute, you just said only a third are moving toward, is anybody abstinent in these? Well, no, 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 because these are not aimed at abstinent people. Like you don't want to like have 
people who are seeking ads. I mean, you could technically, but I think it's a better idea to have abstinence-focused housing be abstinence-focused. But the problem right now with our abstinence-focused housing is they don't allow people on medication. Here's what I think here's one argument that the Schellenberger would make is, look, housing first meant we're going to wait till we have the right amount of houses in the region to stop homelessness. And then, only then, do we tackle the question of no, drug no, but that abuse no, no, and no. chaos that on the streets. That's a misinterpretation of the term. You know, there is an argument to be had over group shelters and whether you should have more of those or focus everything on supportive housing, aka housing first. That is a technical argument. And I do not have a position on okay. that. But I think that what you want to do is have housing available for people who are struggling so that they're not shooting up on the street, so that they're not shitting on the street, so that, you know, they can... But how are you going to get them off the street, Maya? If they just say, I don't care, I'm not going. Okay, this is where we get to a fundamental problem with all human beings. There is a class of people among humans called assholes, and they are represented among all classes. And you do get people who are obnoxious among people with addiction, you know, and they are overrepresented among people with addiction because you do get a higher proportion of people with antisocial personality disorder who nobody knows what to do with. And, you know, we can have an argument, is antisocial personality disorder a disease? You know, if you look at the brain stuff, it's just as much a disease as addiction is. Certainly most people with addiction do not have antisocial personality disorder, but figuring out how to deal with people who are just obnoxious and rebellious is really difficult. I want to mention another thing that, that has actually dealt with some of those. So there's a new program called Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion where basically police don't arrest people, but they offer them treatment, but they don't have to go and they just stop the cycle of re-arresting people, um, which is um, used across the country and it's you know sort of expanding. But there's a, a newer version of this where they go to the local businesses and they say, who's the biggest pain in the butt? Who's the person that's always shoplifting? Who's, you know, defecating on your stoop? Like who is the, and they all have one. They all, there's all somebody. And then they blanket that person with services and offers of things. And more often than not, it works. And then they see that person, the other, you know, so they see that this can be done without coercion. And then they become much more open to these kinds of things. And so, yes, you're not going to be able to shower every person with resources and it's not going to work every time and it's not going to always work quickly. But we have ways of approaching people that are more likely to help and less likely to harm. Because when we look at what we're doing now, we're just putting people through jail over and over and over. We're spreading disease. We're increasing the risk of suicide. We're increasing, you know, spreading COVID, not just HIV and hepatitis C. You know, it makes people more likely to die by suicide. Like there's all of these things that it makes worse. We need to stop making things worse and start reaching out to people. Now, again, does this mean that there are not going to be a few people that, you know, <laughs> people are going to get arrested? Now, yes, people, you know, that extreme, but that is a minority. That is a much smaller group of people than you would imagine, even if you go to some of these places where there's concentrated public injecting and stuff like this. And again, safe injection facilities, there are just all kinds of better ways of doing this 
that are more likely to result in people getting in recovery. Because we have tried over and over and over to get people into recovery by making them miserable and by treating them like crap. And that does not work. Well, um, we Maya, Maya, on that note, um, <laughs> we've been having a long and interesting conversation. I, I, all I can say is that I, I'm glad that harm reduction worked in your case and that uh, you're here and you're still alive and kicking and more than kicking, uh, kicking ass in so many ways. The book on doing drugs, person Maya Salovitz, thank you, Maya, for coming and talking this through with me. We're trying to figure out how to best deal with this question. And you've been incredibly honest and straightforward with your arguments. And I'm glad to hash them out a little bit with you. And also, it's nice to get to know you a little bit better. Thank you so much. This is on doing drugs. And we will see you next week here on the Dishcast, where we're here to explore every topic and to try and explore it from every angle and just be honest and real as we can. And that's the philosophy here, this little podcast. And I'm so grateful, Maya, for you coming and participating. Thanks so much. See you all next week. Bye. <laughs>